So my name is Brad Kelly, and I'm not a pastor or an elder or a deacon or any official person at Calvary Bible Church, although I have taught the, the Home Builder Sunday School class for uh, some time. I'm just this guy that the elders invited to come and preach while, while uh, part of the congregation is away camping at, was it Lake Chimichanga or Lake, Lake, Lake Kachuma? Yeah. So, you know, I hope they're enjoying their 110 degree temperature. Yeah, it's, it's awesome in here. But the elders leaving, you know, the pulpit in, you know, the hands of someone like me is kind of a lot like a, this movie from the 1980s called Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I don't know if you know that movie or not. Ferris skips school and then he thinks it would be a good idea to borrow his... Uh, what, his best friends is a Lamborghini or a Ferrari or something, and they go out joyriding around Chicago. Um, I mean, what could go wrong? Right? What could go wrong? So the last time I spoke, though, speaking of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Bob Powell. Bob, are you here this morning? Bob's not here. Okay, you can tell him. Oh, yeah, you are here. Okay, great, great. So Bob gave me a bad time about the number of movies from the 1980s that I mentioned in the course of my talk. And, you know, all I can say is that it's not my fault that there are so many great, quotable movies from the 1980s. And to prove my point, I want to do a little survey right now. So I'm going to give you a line or a reference to a movie from the 1980s. And you're going to tell me the title of the movie. Okay? Very simple. All right, here's the first one. Hasta la vista, baby. Terminator, yeah, former governor, yeah, of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay, how about this one? Flux capacitor. Back to the future, hello. How about this one? Phone home. E.T., okay, good. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Princess Bride, of course. Ariel, the human world... It's a mess. <laughs> Little Mermaid, right? Um, here's one that I put in at a request. Uh, goodbye, Millie. I love you. <laughs> what? You know that? The Boy Who Could Fly. Yes, and that was starring Jay Underwood, our own pastor, Jay Underwood. <laughs> that was the only line he had. <laughs> that was the only line he had. All right, here's one. I, I just got two more. Um, your thoughts betray you, Father. I feel the good in you, the conflict. There is no conflict. Yeah, well, that's the Return of the Jedi, right? One of the Star Wars movies. Okay, this last one I doubly like because it's going to actually loop us back into the sermon or into the message. And even as it gets a simple Bible fact wrong that they could have fact-checked in one minute. So this is two men, dialogue going back and forth. The first one says, The Ark of the Covenant, the chest that the Hebrews used to carry around the Ten Commandments. What? You mean the Ten Commandments? Yes, the actual Ten Commandments. The original stone tablets that Moses brought down from Mount Ararat and smashed, if you believe in that sort of thing. Didn't any of you guys ever go to Sunday school? So what's that movie? Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Source. What's the wrong fact? Yeah, so he didn't bring it down from Mount Ararat. He brought it down from Mount Sinai, of course. 
I could go on. But, Bob, all I want to say is that the 1980s were a great time for quotable movies. So take that. All right. So this morning, we're going to look at a quote, little quotable gem of a psalm, Psalm 133. So my goal this morning is that we will leave here having been edified, encouraged, and maybe even a little bit challenged. So is, uh, would you please put that up on the screen? And uh, would you please stand with me, everyone, and let's read the Word of God together, shall we? Now, um, I'm looking at the screen... Uh, All right, we'll just read everything that's up there, okay? Let's begin. Psalm 133, the excellency of brotherly unity, a song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you for your word. We love your word. And we're gathered here this morning to contemplate it and to, and to behold it and to learn from it. So, Lord, I pray that you will open our hearts this morning. Help us to receive the truth that it is that you have for us this morning. And uh, I pray that through your spirit you will speak to us, knit us together, help continue to form us as a congregation of people who love you and serve you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The Psalms are the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. Our Savior was marinated in the Psalms, and we see him quoting them and teaching from them from the birth of his public ministry until uh, literally when he was on the cross. Our Lord Jesus often presented himself through the Psalms, and one of my very favorite ones, times that he did that, was recorded in all the synoptic Gospels when he poses a question to the Pharisees from Psalm 110. So he asked them, he says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, and he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how then is he his son? Well, that was a real poser for the Pharisees. And in fact, they could not answer that. And said after that, they refused. They just didn't ask him any more questions at all. In Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Satan challenges him based on a messianic passage in Psalm 91. And I say all this only to emphasize the centrality and the importance of the Psalms. And we overlook them to our own impoverishment. And in a way, I'm preaching to myself here because you would think that as a musician... I would have been all over the Psalms. But it really wasn't until fairly recently, having studied the book of Hebrews, which kind of naturally segued me into the Psalms. And then, of course, the home builders had to suffer as I spent the next three years teaching them in the class. So um, we're going to talk about the Psalms this morning. The collected Psalms are called the Psalter. And there are 150 individual Psalms in the Psalter. The Psalter is divided into five books or five sections. Psalm 133, which we're going to be looking at this morning, is part of the collection in book five called 
the Psalms of Ascents. Psalms 120 through 134. The Psalms of Ascents are holiday music. They were sung as a part of the three festivals that all Israelite men were instructed to attend each year, which were Passover, celebrating Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt, takes place in the spring, and corresponds to the Christian Easter observance. Of course, Christ was crucified at Passover. Secondly, Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, takes place 50 days later, celebrating the giving of the law. It was June 5th this year. And it was at this first Pentecost after Jesus' ascension, of course, that the Holy Spirit came and we see the birth of the New Testament church. The Feast of Booths or Tabernacles takes place in the autumn and is a remembrance of Israel's wilderness travels and the fact that the Lord had traveled with them and also his provision for them. Christians, we don't have a a similar ceremony. Uh, Thanksgiving would be the closest thing that we have to, to compare to that. And to be clear, New Testament believers are not commanded to observe any of these festivals except the receiving of the Lord's Supper. But the Jews were. And a whole set of traditions arose, including music, which was reserved for the occasion, just like our Christmas music. There are 15 Psalms of Ascents, which are arranged in five sets of three, each of them telling the going to the festival, the being at the festival, and the the third one, the leaving of the festival. So Psalm 133 is is the, the middle one of the final three in the set. So Psalm 132 says, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. So God's people are gathering in obedience to his command. Then the celebration. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Psalm 133. And then the return home. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Sort of a farewell to the temple servants as we leave Jerusalem for the journey home. So let's, if you have your Bibles open, or if you have your Bible, I would urge you to open to Psalm 133. I guess I should have asked you to do that in the first place. And let's look at the text. First of all, we see the superscription, which says, A Psalm of Ascents of David. Now, the superscription is a part of the inspired text. So when you read the Psalms, don't skip over that. The superscription attributes this psalm to David. 73 of the 150 psalms are attributed to David. And if there's anyone who knew what he was talking about when it came to the pain of conflict and the value of unity, it was David. He was anointed as king while still a boy by Samuel the prophet. He grew up during the failed reign of King Saul. He watched the nation fall away from the Lord. He watched Saul's fall into idolatry, his murder of the priests at Nob, all of this resulting in the Lord disciplining Saul and all Israel at the hands of the Philistines and others. And though Saul was brought to the throne as a warrior, eventually Israel was crushed on the battlefield at Mount Gilboa, resulting in the death of Saul and three of his sons, including David's dear friend, Jonathan. So David, who had fought for Israel, even as Saul was pursuing and trying to kill him, inherited a fractured nation. At first, only his own tribe of Judah, as well as the small tribe of Benjamin, invited David's rule. And then there was a civil war between the house of Saul under the leadership of Ishbosheth, Saul's last remaining son, and the house of David. Finally, the northern kingdom joined seven and a half years later after Saul's last son, Ishbosheth, was murdered while he was taking his afternoon nap. So, what does anything 
What does any of this have to do with Psalm 133? Well, first, David had seen firsthand the result of disunity. But he saw that this disunity was an effect and not necessarily a first cause. How do we know this? Well, look at what David did as soon as he ascended to the throne. The first thing that David did after uniting the two kingdoms was to take Jerusalem from the Jebusites, which, would have, which should have been done before, and he established his capital there. The next thing that David did was to bring the long-neglected Ark of the Covenant up to Zion and reestablish the worship of the Lord God of Israel in Jerusalem on what would become the Temple Mount. Psalm 132 speaks of this at length. David knew that the nation could not and would not prosper until their relationship with the God who had formed them was restored. This included, most prominently, covenant worship. David reconstituted the priesthood in the Levitical services, including appointing men like Asaph and his family, the sons of Korah, Haman, Ethan, and others to lead in music and singing. One of the results of all of this was the restoration of a central place of worship and the, the institution or the reinstitution of these traveling feasts that we talked about earlier, Passover, Pentecost, and Booths, which had been commanded over 400 years earlier at the time of the Exodus and had been restated by Moses as Israel was about to enter the land in Deuteronomy chapter 16. So having reestablished the centrality of worship in the life of the nation, Israel began then to reap the benefits of their covenantal relationship with God. The nation dwelt together in unity, in prosperity, in territorial integrity. So that then brings us back to the text of Psalm 133. When you look at Psalm 133, what do you see? Mary, are you out there? Mary Haupt? What do you see? Three verses. Very good. Very good. Three verses. So Psalm 117 is the shortest. Two verses. But Psalm 131, 133, and 134 are all three verses each. As a group, the Psalms of Ascents tend to be brief. And when you're doing the read through the Bible thing, you know, you can knock out ten of them, you know, in no time. <laughs> I read ten Psalms today. It took me five minutes. And... Um, this is especially noteworthy coming as, as they do after the longest psalm, Psalm 119, which has 22 stanzas and 176 verses. So Psalm 133 is brief, but it packs a punch. The second thing I notice is how modern and how timeless it sounds. In the morning when I get up, I, you know, I would like to say that you know, the first thing I do is I open my Bible and I have my devotions. But actually... The first thing that I do when I get up is I put on the coffee, and while it's being made, I go to uh, the, my computer, and I open up. The mor- every morning I get the Writer's Almanac from Garrison Keillor. And it's five minutes. In five minutes, Garrison Keillor, he uh, plays a little cute little theme that he plays on piano, and then he talks about writers, um, famous writers who maybe were born on that day or one of their famous books was published on that day. And then at the end, he reads a little poem. And some of these poems are just great. And I've often thought that this psalm would fit right in with the writer's almanac. I don't know if he ever used a psalm, but I think that he should have. He's not doing them anymore. Otherwise, I would write to him and say, hey, Garrison, buddy, you need to stick Psalm 133 in uh, the writer's almanac. 
So Psalm 133 was written by David, the son of Jesse and the forefather of our Savior. So let's look at the text. The first thing I see is the challenge of brotherhood. We see this first verse, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. So this first word, behold, I want to bring to your attention. I want you to notice and learn from. Please notice to see it for what it is or what it means. So the exhortation here is to look for meaning, to look for meaning. We see this everywhere in Scripture. God saw, if we go to Genesis 1, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. You can fast forward five chapters and you see God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Moses wants to draw our attention to the nature and the work of God versus the nature and work of fallen man. Moses is pointing to these events and telling us to extract meaning from them. What God does is good, and God hates corruption and violence. Here, in Psalm 133, David wants to draw our attention to the opposite, to the good and pleasant fruit of unity. Now, we'll talk about good and pleasant in a minute, but first... Who are the beneficiaries of this unity? Brothers. The text says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Now, every word in Scripture matters. We evangelicals tend to be careless in our use of language. We use the language, but we don't know what the words mean. As Inigo Montoya said, You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. So let's look at this. And as I read this, I pondered this myself. So what is significant about the idea of brothers that would cause the psalmist to point to brothers as opposed to just people? I mean, it must be good and pleasant for people to dwell together in unity, but but the psalmist said brothers. What is it about brothers? Well, I think it's this. Number one, brothers have a permanent binding relationship. They're family. Those relationships are very powerful, both in the positive and in the negative. Family members can be a great blessing. I love my brother. We get along great in many ways. He's a better man than I am. So we have a wonderful relationship. But family members also have the potential for some of the most hateful, mean-spirited, painful, destructive, long-standing, ugly disagreements. We know each other too well, and we're stuck with each other. It takes time and repeated bad experiences to grow to really despise someone. And that's exactly what you can get with family. I would argue that it's harder for brothers to be unified than other relational groups just for that very reason. You know, I'm a, I'm a jazz trombone player, and I play in bands all around town. I'm gone so much that I can't be a member, so what I do is I sit in. And you know what? I don't know these guys. I can come in, I can sit down, I can be with them for two hours, and we get along great because I go home when it's all said and done. So they're not stuck with me, and I'm not stuck with them. But David has something bigger than the nuclear family in mind here. David is thinking of his people, Israel, the prototype or foreshadowing of the New Testament church. Brothers here refers to the kinship of fellow believers, as in brothers in the faith. Of course, we see this again in the New Testament. Jesus instructed Peter, strengthen your brothers. 
He said, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. So what's the point? As a brother or a sister, you are bound together with that other person. And here's the thing. God uses binding relationships to build character. Your marriage, your children, your siblings, your membership as a believer at Calvary Bible Church, these are all relationships that God is using to build your character. That's why those relationships can be so hard, because character building is hard work. And when believers get their noses out of joint and separate themselves from spouses, parents, siblings, and fellow church members, they are, in essence, dropping the class in character building and refusing to learn the lessons that only brotherhood can teach. So the beneficiaries of this unity are brothers, that is, people who are in a committed, binding, long-term relationship with other believers. That was the challenge of brotherhood. How about the choice of brothers of brotherhood? Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. To dwell together, this furthers this point about the ongoing nature of the relationship. We inhabit the same space, either physical or mental. The passage of time and the consistency of place are what are being are being pointed at here. To exhibit and maintain unity over years and decades in spite of our differences. I would argue that that is a choice that we make, not something which isn't supernaturally implanted at salvation, much like forgiveness. This continues this idea of brotherhood. We're in it for the long haul. So now we come to the point of the passage, unity. What does unity look like in real life? How is unity different from say, uniformity? Or is it different? So it's easy to fall into the checklist mentality, right? Doctrine, political party, of course, how they raise their kids, choice of entertainments, favorite preachers, style of Christian music, etc. But I disagree with that approach. Unity is not a static checklist. It's an active and ongoing process. It's a choice that we make. Not a choice in the sense that it's optional. Like forgiveness, it's commanded, but we often fail to obey it. Because where the human heart is involved, there is always the danger that passion will overwhelm principle, as David himself experienced to his own grief. Thirdly, unity is a challenge. The pages of Scripture clearly portray the pain and suffering caused by disunity. Cain and Abel. Abraham and Lot, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, Miriam's rebellion, Korah's rebellion. We could go on. Paul had to deal with this as he planted churches in the Gentile world. What is one of the key messages of the epistle to the Philippians? Unity. He even calls out two women by name who can't get along. Imagine that. Here we are 2,000 years later and their names are, you know, they're still written down there for us to consider them. Disunity was also a problem in the Galatian church. If you bite and devour one another, Paul says, take care that you're not consumed by one another. The Corinthian church struggled with unity as well. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. And we're going to come back to that in, in a few minutes. 
So disunity is not a new problem, but it's something against which we must always be on our guard. Stanley Harawas also points to a second reason that unity is hard to maintain, and that is the smorgasbord approach which dominates a lot of Protestant evangelicalism makes real church discipline almost impossible. Pastors and elders can work and weep to reconcile a brother or sister only to have them leave in a huff and be instantly accepted by another congregation without question as to why they left their previous church. If you left the Church of Rome in a huff, there probably wasn't another church within convenient chariot driving distance. So now let's talk about this good and pleasant. David says that it is good and pleasant for brothers to dwell together in unity. When you see this word good, what do you think of? This word good. Well, I think there are several possibilities off the top of my head. First of all, we could say, well, it's advantageous. My neighbor got a good deal on that new car he'd been wanting. It made him happy that he paid less than he expected to. Or we could say good is equitable. I backed my van into my neighbor's new car, but I made it good by paying to have it fixed. Right? Fair is fair. We might say that good is generous. I backed my van into my neighbor's new car and offered to pay to have it fixed, but he said, no, we're good. It'll probably rub out. Or we might say something like this. I backed my van into my neighbor's new car, but the good news is he didn't see me. But suddenly, it seems like we're on the wrong track here, right? But why? Why did, why did that last one uh, feel wrong? Or how, how do we get on the wrong track? How do we know what's good? How do we discern good from not good? First of all, we must understand that good and goodness have nothing whatsoever to do with who I am or what I want or what I think and everything to do with who God is and what he wants, and what he thinks. Goodness is an attribute of God, and therefore points here to moral goodness. It is morally good for brothers to dwell together in unity. David is saying that the goodness of unity is morally good, and because all of God's attributes are in harmony with one another, hitting my neighbor's car and not telling him violates the commandment to Love your neighbor as yourself. You can't violate God's law, which is a manifestation of God's character, and call it good. Goodness has its source in God, and any goodness manifested anywhere at any time had its origin in Him. Psalm 119 says, You are good and you do good. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. Therefore, we can say then that unity is one aspect of, of the goodness of God on display through his people. So let's not confuse good with what I want. I want my wife to agree with me all the time. But very often, she doesn't agree with me. And that's a good thing. And it follows that it's good for both of us to find a way to dwell together in unity. Goodness is Christ-like. Scripture says Jesus went about doing good 
Jesus explicitly connects this idea with God the Father, God's will, and exhibiting God's character. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So it's Christ-like, and it's God-honoring. It is good for brothers to dwell together in unity. Is there a bad kind of unity? Of course. Augustine, in his Confessions, talks about this. As a youth, he and a group of his friends broke into a neighbor's orchard and stole bushel baskets of pears. He said he didn't even care about the pears. In fact, he had a better pear tree by his own front door. In fact, they wound up feeding these stolen pears to some pigs. But in the Confessions, he asks, Would I have done this by myself if my friends had not enticed me? And he he answered his own question. He said, no, I would not have. So we have warnings against this as well in the first chapter of the Proverbs. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path, for their feet run to evil. So there is a bad kind of unity, but that's not what is in view here. The second thing David says is that not only is unity good, but he says that it's pleasant. And the best way I can define that is harmonious. It's harmonious. There's pleasure in it. And, you know, I was thinking about it, and uh, something that, that immediately popped into my mind was the idea of choir. You know, we're coming up uh, to the Christmas season, and we're going to put together a choir to sing for the Christmas program. And the choir will continue through Easter. So that's kind of the choir season. And it's interesting, the relationship that that group has among itself. They spend time together. They're bound to one another. um, uh, They're they're, uh, united in this goal to try to achieve this one thing, this God-honoring performance, presentation of music. So that, that relationship is very pleasant. It's good and pleasant. Thomas Horton says this, How is unity pleasant? First, it's pleasant to God. It's acceptable to Him. He delights in it wherever He observes it. Jehovah is a God of peace, and He delights in peaceable Christians. Secondly, this brotherly unity is also pleasant to ourselves, who accordingly shall have so much the greater pleasure in it and from it. And thirdly, it's also pleasing to others. It is pleasant to all who are observers of the church, Paul wrote to the Romans, For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So as I was meditating over this, um, I, over this psalm, a poem popped into my mind that, um, you know, I don't know like what they teach kids in school anymore. I don't know if they, like, do they do poetry? Do they study poetry? But when I was in elementary school and junior high, We studied poetry, and one of the poems that we studied was by Elizabeth Barrett Browning called How Do I Love Thee? Let Me Count the Ways. A lot of us maybe have heard of this poem. And so she writes this. Um, By the way, she was married to the poet Robert Browning, so you had two, two poets living in the same house. You can imagine what that was like. So she says, How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach when feeling out of sight for the ends of being and ideal grace. I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need by sun and candlelight. I love thee freely as men strive for right. 
I love thee purely as they turn from praise. And so on. And this is exactly what David does here. And we might even rephrase David into the form that the poet does here and say, how good and how pleasant are unity? Let me show you two ways. So then David employs two poetic illustrations of the goodness and the pleasantness of unity. The first one, verse 2, is from the book of the law. And I think that that corresponds to the idea of the goodness of unity. The second one, verse 3, is from the book of nature. And I think that that one corresponds to the idea of the pleasantness of unity. So let's look at this, verse 2. Verse 2 says, It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. Now, oil flowing from the top of one's head and down the side of one's face and down your beard and onto your clothing sounds icky unless you understand what it's referring to. Otherwise, the illustration stands in the way of the point that it's trying to make. This first scene is from Exodus chapter 40 when Aaron is installed as high priest. Aaron is dressed in priestly garments for glory and for beauty and is, and is anointed with this precious oil, which is referred to here. First of all, it's not just any cooking oil or 10W40 lubricant. This is the anointing oil described in Exodus chapter 30. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take also for yourself the finest of spices, of flowing myrrh, fragrant cinnamon, fragrant cane, cassia, olive oil, and you shall make of these a holy anointing oil, a perfume mixture, the work of a perfumer. So note that the oil itself is a harmonious blending of different elements. And this oil is actually a perfume. And it maybe it might help to think of somebody uh, pouring a bottle of, is it Paco Rabanne, is the, 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 uh, or Yves Saint Laurent cologne on his head. The point is that this oil is a kind of perfume, and its scent then diffuses to everyone who comes around. The scent can remain even after the person is gone. The meaning of all this is given in Leviticus 8. Moses then took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. Then he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Notice that the oil consecrates Aaron. It sets him apart. In the same way, unity should set the church apart. And if there was ever a time that unity was countercultural, it's now. Notice how David specifically mentions Aaron's head, then his beard, and then his robes. The point is that the oil doesn't stay put. It flows out and down. In fact, David mentions running down twice in this verse. And of course, this is a metaphor for divine blessing. Next, its application is generous. Notice that it's poured on Aaron's head, and there's so much that it runs down his beard and onto the collar of his robes. There are some times when thrift is a virtue, but this is not one of them. This is a picture of the extravagant consideration and lavish love and forbearance that the Lord extends to us and that we should extend to one another. Regardless of how good your doctrine is, you're still a sinner saved by grace. And the grace you've received needs to flow through you onto others with whom you come into contact. 
Remember that Aaron's robes were a symbol of the nation of Israel. There were shoulder clasps of onyx, which had the names of the 12 tribes inscribed on them. And also he wore a breastplate, which had 12 stones, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel. As, Paul, as Christians, Paul says that we've been grafted into Israel. So our names have been inscribed on these onyx stones. And the same anointing of brotherly love flows to us as well. We should be the kind of people who leave behind them a fragrance of brotherly love and unity. The second illustration that David uses is the dew of Hermon. He says, it's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Hermon is Mount Hermon, located about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. It's about 9,200 feet tall, almost as tall as um, Mount Baldy. You know, and it has, it's snow-covered. And this metaphor of dew is a bit of a stretch for us here in Southern California, especially right now when it's 130 degrees every day. But if you are from the east or the south, um, you know that if you go out and walk on your lawn in the morning, your feet are going to get wet. In Scripture, dew is referenced commonly, and its presence is always seen as a blessing and the lack of dew as a curse. Here, Isaac's blessing of Jacob. Now may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. So this dew is a picture of blessing. It's a picture of prosperity. Compare this to his blessing for Esau. Behold, Away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven from above. Moses said, Let my teaching drop as rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, and as the showers on the herb. The blessing comes down from the heights of Mount Hermon and blesses Mount Zion. Zion, of course, is the hilltop in Jerusalem where David brought the ark and later where the temple was located. So Zion is both a physical place and a spiritual place. It's physical because it's the city of the great king. It's the hill of the Lord. But it's spiritual because it's the epicenter of the nation's worship. So here we have a picture of unity as a blessing to the eternal community of Christ. And so now we come to the punchline. The point of the blessing of unity is pictured through the perfumed oil and the dew. And I thank the Benson people for this For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. For there, where brethren live in peace and unity, or in Zion, the preeminent example, that is, in God's church or among his people, the Lord commanded, that is, he ordained, promised, conferred, and established the blessing, namely, all manner of blessedness for his people who sincerely worship him, even life forevermore, which is the blessing of blessings. Just as the blessed metabolism of worship took place on Mount Zion, so the metabolism of worship takes place here among the people of God at Calvary Bible Church. So how does this song end? Well, it ends with blessing, godly and God-honoring prosperity in its fullest sense. So let's get real for a minute. It's really interesting to me that often when sermons are preached about the ideal 
healthy church. We often hear this verse from Acts 2 quoted. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread, that is communion or the Eucharist, and to prayer. Simple, right? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just create a checklist, a spiritual to-do list, where we could just check off the boxes on that list and we could eradicate disharmony in the church? Teaching, check. Fellowship, check. Communion, check. Prayer, check. Now, this exemplary church was in Jerusalem. And this, this, uh, the, verse, uh, the verses um, in Acts 2.42 are, are alluding to this church right after Pentecost. But let's fast forward 15 years when James, the half-brother to Jesus and leader of the Jerusalem church, is reprimanding the same group of people for their, quote, quarrels and conflicts and asking, who are you to judge your neighbor? Then if we fast forward a few more years, we see Paul writing to the Corinthian church about division over the same thing. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree there be no divisions among you. I'm, you know, I'm uh, fast forwarding here. I'm uh, informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. And now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. What are they quarreling about? What are they experiencing disunity over? It's the apostles' leadership and teaching. You go to Corinth and we see that the breaking of bread has its problems as well. Paul writes, Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. And one is hungry and the other drunk. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I shall not praise you. We see the same thing in the Galatian church. For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. So we can see that one can go all the way back to the beginning of the church and see that there's always something to disagree about. There's always something to fight about. So my question this morning, brothers and sisters, is how do you think we at Calvary Bible Church have been doing in this area? Is there that sweet, lingering fragrance that verse 2 talks about? Is there a gentle, nurturing spirit like the dew, which is a blessing both to the daisy and the oak tree? Is body life at CBC good and pleasant? My answer is that today I think the Calvary Bible Church family life is good and pleasant though it has not always been so. Church fellowship groups continue to thrive. Attendance is growing, albeit slowly. Men and women's Bible studies, fellowship groups and the like are thriving. Church activities and social events, especially pickleball, are especially well attended. Leadership are united and of one mind, but challenges always remain. The things that church fight, churches fight about uh, are, are the same through all time. We fight about doctrine. And it's fascinating to me that although we are a church with a strong distinctive of teaching and doctrine, that we really don't have spirited discussions or disagree about doctrine. Why is that? I don't know. How about church governance? Have you ever noticed that the topic of church leadership is situated within Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul exhorts them to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
The eldership is the means through which God blesses and builds up the church. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service and to the building up of the body of Christ. The recent public displays of disrespect, lack of submission to the servant leadership of men who serve and sacrifice to lead this body are sinful and to be condemned out of hand. The impugning of the integrity and character of these men is shameful and has no place among the people of God, period. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. How about music? I'm a professional musician, as I said. I know music. I know music history, including church music history. And I can tell you that the use of music has been controversial from the earliest days of the church. There's no aspect of Sunday morning worship which is more culturally sensitive and preconditioned than music. Every Sunday, Ian Martin is treading on terra incognita. He and the worship team deserve our thanks, support, and prayers as they serve in this important area. How about personal conflicts? There are a variety of these. There are conflicts between church members. And when this happens, the disturbance tends to be localized. But when personal conflict between leaders takes place, it often spills over into the congregation. But in both cases, we have this metaphor of a marriage which is in trouble. And there are two possible reactions to that or responses to that. The first one is identification with one of the parties an outrage on their behalf, which just inflames and makes things worse. Or two, the desire to help heal the schism. Very often, that requires prayer and keeping your opinion to yourself. Very often, our judgments in these situations have less to do with the facts, which 99% of the time we don't have, than it has to do with our friendship with one of the parties and our desire to support them which then just evolves into two warring camps. Blessed are the peacemakers. Stay out of it. Now, I want to go back to this quote from 1 Corinthians where, you know, Paul is upbraiding them. I am of Paul. I am Cephas. I had always thought of these as being theological differences. And, you know, maybe they were. But I'm beginning to wonder if there wasn't more to it than that. And Paul acknowledges this in his second letter to the Corinthians when he writes this, For they say about himself, His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. That doesn't sound like a theological objection to me. It sounds like they just didn't like him. Paul dealt with this in his letter to the Romans. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. In short, brothers and sisters, there is no magic bullet There is no guarantee of protection against that sin of division which so easily besets us. But as the Hebrew writer instructs us, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Man, If that doesn't describe what happened last October 31st, I don't know what does. Let us today covenant together to be prayerful, 
regarding ourselves and others. Let us be watchful of our speech and our attitudes regarding these things and encourage others in this as well. And let us be careful to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let us practice encouragement, consolation, fellowship, affection, and compassion towards one another. I want to enlist everyone here this morning in the pursuit of the goal of 10 years of peace at Calvary Bible Church. I just turned 70 a couple weeks ago. When I turn 80, should the Lord give me that many years, I want us all to be able to look back and say how good and pleasant it has been for brothers to dwell together in unity. Will you join me in that quest? If so, please say, Amen. All right, one last thing. This psalm and this message are pointed at those who are members of the body of Christ through repentance and belief in the gospel. But I would be remiss in my responsibility this morning if I didn't acknowledge the fact that there are probably are some in attendance this morning who are not members of the body of Christ. You don't know Christ. You may have been invited by someone or come as a favor to a friend or relative. Maybe your house doesn't have air conditioning and you're just glad to be in a cool place this morning. Maybe you've been weighing the claims of Christianity. Whatever this church thing is foreign to you. I want to tell you first that this morning is a divine appointment, not an accident. There are no accidents with God. The Lord has brought you here this morning. Why? Because today is the day of salvation. That's why. He's offering that to you right now, the opportunity to repent and believe the gospel. If this is something that you want to respond to or if there's anything else you'd like someone to pray with you about, there will be the Ayalas, I think, will be down here after the service this morning. And they'd be happy to pray with you about that or I would be happy to meet with you myself. But, as the Hebrew writer said, see to it that you do not refuse him, God, who is speaking. And I pray that for you this morning. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I thank you for Calvary Bible Church and what a blessing that it has been to me and to my family for these many decades. I thank you for the brothers and sisters in Christ with whom I have walked together, the goodness and enjoy the goodness and the pleasantness of unity. And I pray that for every person who is here that they would know the goodness and pleasantness of the unity in Christ. So I pray that you will, your spirit will be very strong in our, in our body and that we would be careful in the things that we say and the things that we would do. We would be uh, quick to listen and slow to speak. And Lord, that you would be gracious to us and that you would give us 10 years of peace and prosperity here at Calvary Bible Church. I pray that you would help each one of us to be a part of that. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.